Isn't it funny how we all start off with a plan or conception of what our life and career will look like, but oftentimes we are forced, or maybe we choose, to pivot into something entirely different? Well, this is a podcast where we sit down with celebrities, athletes, and entrepreneurs to hear how they handle these unexpected events. I'm your host, Andrew East. I'm an engineer turned professional athlete turned entrepreneur, and I'm super excited to bring you these stories in order to help you move closer to your dreams, no matter what they look like. Welcome back to the show, everybody. I first wanted to stop and thank each and every one of you for taking the time on a weekly basis to listen to these episodes. I know there's tons of other podcasts out there and a lot of other content that you could be consuming, but you've chosen to sit down with me, and I couldn't be more thankful. On that note, I wanted to encourage you all, if you haven't yet, to subscribe to the show on whatever platform you're listening on, whether that's YouTube or Apple Podcasts, could be Spotify, just hit that subscribe button, that really helps me out. Today we sit down with Earl Bennett, who is a seven-year NFL veteran and graduate of my alma mater, Vanderbilt University, and Earl tells his story of how he was able to overcome the adversity of being raised in an impoverished household to ultimately reach incredible levels of success, and I really enjoyed this conversation. If you want to follow Earl on social media, you can find him on most platforms at Earl B. Bennett, and he also has his own podcast, it's called ProSile Podcast, he hosts it on YouTube as well as anywhere you can find podcasts. He actually was nice enough to invite me on, and we had a lot of fun, so you can go ahead and check that out. Today's episode is actually dedicated to a member of the Vanderbilt family, and that is a 16-year athletic director, David Williams. And David passed away this week in a tragic accident, and I was reflecting on my time with David and the man that he was, and I'm extremely thankful for how he treated me during my five years there, ultimately helping me get into the school, and then allowing me to have some amazing football memories, and then actually graduating with two degrees. A lot of this is because David Williams, and I couldn't be more thankful for his role in my life, as well as thousands and thousands of other students and athletes at Vanderbilt. So thank you, David. On that note, we're going to go ahead and jump in with Earl Bennett. It's going to be a lot of fun. Go ahead and enjoy. Earl, it is an honor to sit here and talk with you. It's an honor to meet you. Thanks for Man, it's a pleasure, man. I, I followed you. I know a lot of people that speak very highly of you, so of course I had to come on. You must be talking to some, to some bad people, but uh, <laughs> um, no, this is great. Earl and I just connected actually last week, and uh, obviously there's a lot of connections that we have. We know a lot of the same people, obviously around Vanderbilt. There's a lot of similar programs that we've been doing, but um, I'm curious. I don't know where you grew up, Earl. I'd love to hear your, your upbringing and your background. Yeah, so for me, I was born in Birmingham, Alabama. I went to high school at West End. And I'm the youngest of five, man. So my whole family just pretty much just beat me up, you know, growing up. Uh, <laughs> no. it, was, it was rough. No, no, no. It was rough because my brother, who's four years older than me, he literally treated me like I was like his little son. Like he sunned me every chance he had to. Like I can recall a few instances where I come to him and I'm like, hey, man, um, could you help me out with this homework? Like I, I'm struggling with my multiplication. Could you help me out? He looks at it. And he goes, dude. Five times five, 25, you're an idiot. Get out of here. Like, <laughs> bro, like, like he was just so like rough on me. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm the youngest of five. It, it was tough. Um, my mom pretty much caught up me, uh, stayed out of the streets, uh, single parent home. And we just, we made a way, man. We found a way. And it was, it was a tough environment just because I grew up uh, in poverty, but to see, their resilience within my family to overcome that situation is, is amazing. And so, yeah, it was 
probably around the age of eight where I realized that I wanted to be better than my brother. Like that, that's all I wanted to do. Like in life was just like to prove to my big brother that I can do anything better than you. And I started playing football. Yeah. I feel like the record needs to be set straight a little bit here because I'm the middle of five kids. And so I have a young, our youngest in our family is uh, a boy too. And Uh so I I know how he got coddled and I feel like, you know, as a middle kid, I had it the (laughs) roughest. Nobody cared about me. I'm just sitting there doing my thing, forgotten. You see, that's, that's my brother. He was a middle kid. Like, and I think he used to just take his frustration out on me and, yeah, it was tough because we had that sibling rivalry. Whatever he tried to do, I tried to, like, not match it. I tried to best it, like, astronomically. Like, if he had 20 points and 10 rebounds, i go out and try to score 40. I shoot every I shoot every ball, have zero assists. I pull a Kobe Bryant. So it was, uh, it was cool to grow up and have somebody, like, challenge you like that, especially, yeah. like, mentally and, um, and physically being on the court or on the field. Yeah, so your brother was an athlete as well, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My brother was an athlete. He uh three-sport athlete, played football, basketball, baseball, same as myself. And we just pushed each other, like, every chance. Like, I would go work out with him, and he'd tell me I don't have enough weights on the bench. And I'm like, dude, I'm only 12. Like, I need to be doing body weight. But at this point, I uh, he's trying to add another 25 or 35. And so, yeah, he 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 definitely pushed me in ways that, you know, I appreciate now. But back then, nah, man, I didn't. Brutal. I, I didn't like that. Yeah, yeah, I didn't like that at all. Yeah, my my older brother JD is probably like I, I consider him to be the biggest influence of my life, just because exactly what you're saying. Like I, the reason I did things was so that I could beat him in whatever it yeah. was. Yeah, that's, so, that's that's it. Yeah, that, my whole life, I wanted to just beat my brother, and yeah. so when I got to eighth grade, we were the same height. So, like, the playing fields were even. Uh, of course, he was stronger than I was. But, hey, we were the same height. I could jump as he could, block some his shot. And I'll never forget, we were playing at Central Park Recreation Center. Never forget this. I have game point. He fouled me so hard. <laughs> he fouled me. But after he fouled me, he just get up and walk out. Like, he just left. <laughs> game over it. Like, He's like, nah, I'm out of here. This is stupid. And I was just like, well, that was my chance. And he never played me again. Never. Like, never, ever again. We didn't play no more. That's funny. Did you get the opportunity to play with him in high school sports, like for football or basketball? So he's four years older than me. So as I was coming into high school, he was leaving. And so when I got into high school, it was always, oh, hey, that's Grant little brother. Like, that's what everybody called me. Nobody called me Earl. Nobody called me Bennett. I was Grant little brother and it burned me on the inside. Like every time they would call me that, I'd go, yo, chill, like chill, chill. My name is Earl. All right, chill, chill. And so I think around the end of my freshman year, people started calling me Earl because I started playing on varsity. And people were like, yo, this little kid's on varsity. He's in the ninth grade. So I went from fourth stream running back uh, during camp until started running back second game. So it was, yeah, I started the game, game freshman year. Yeah. Second game, freshman year, started running back. And Alabama football, it's not as good as Indiana football, but you know, it's pretty, <laughs> it's pretty good. But you said Indiana <laughs> high school football, Indiana high school football, the toughest in the nation. Man. Honestly, outside yourself, I can't name one player. You're lying. You're lying. You played with some. We both went to the same school. You played. Jay Cutler. Let me throw that name out there. I'm thinking. I'm thinking. Jay. 
Oh uh, yeah, Jay played it. <laughs> that's uh, one. That's yeah. one guy. All right, I give you that one. That's it. Yeah. I'll take that. And then Michael Jackson. Uh, I don't know if he played football or not, but I'm pretty sure Michael did not play no football for him. Okay, <laughs> uh, that's funny. That no. See what what position do you think Michael would have played? I think he would have been one of those guys to just lock receiver down with finesse. I don't think he would have been like a huge like tackling machine. Like, I don't I don't see that either. Yeah. yeah, but I could literally see Michael being just like a lockdown, shut down corner, kind of like a uh, like a sort of like a Champ Bailey ish type. You know, Champ isn't gonna throw his head in the like ring that much, but you're gonna know that he's there coverage wise because he's gonna do a phenomenal job. But tackling wise, yeah, eh. doesn't have the grit. Maybe I would love to see him under center, maybe like take a few snaps or running back, kind of just do like a little moonwalk drop back. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I don't know how how effective it would be, but if Michael was at quarterback and he did a moonwalk, that would, <laughs> that would shut everything down. Football like, would be done, man. Yeah, it'd be done. Like nothing <laughs> you can do. Michael did a moonwalk. What um, what could you do? You know, it would yeah. be one of those things. Yeah. No. Um, so okay. So obviously, you had an epic high school career coming out of yeah. Birmingham. Um, talk to me about your recruiting process. Uh, and how that went for you, how you ended up at Vanderbilt. And I'm also curious to hear, uh, you mentioned you grew up in poverty. Like, was there any resistance to you choosing Vanderbilt as a school since it does have a certain stigma um, associated with it? I'm I'm curious to hear your story. Yeah, so for me, uh, being recruited in high school, I think I got my first offer my junior year, which was from Kentucky University. And when I got the first offer, I was stoked, man. I was like, yeah, man, like I get to break, you know, some of the cycles. I get an opportunity to go to college. I get a chance to showcase my skills on a larger uh, scale. And so I was stoked. I was excited. But one thing I did notice was that I was practically being played by a lot of universities because every like most of them that were offering me scholarships, I didn't know for what position. And so when Kentucky offered me, I was like, oh, man, this is cool. This is dope. I got an offer from Kentucky. And I ended up going on a visit, and they was like, yeah, we want you to play safety. And I was like, safety? I was like, wait a second. But I did play safety in high school, and I led the state in interceptions, I think, my junior year. But I was like, you know what? I don't want to play safety. I want to play wide receiver. And there were other schools that was like, hey, man, you could come play wide receiver. And I'll never forget when Vanderbilt came to my house and visited. They sit on the couch. And, <laughs> and he goes, well, you can play wide receiver. You can play running back. You can play safety. We don't care what you play just as long as you come to our school and play. And it was one of those moments where I felt they genuinely cared about me, like, as a person, like, coming to help their school And I got thrown money from some other schools, like schools like, hey, because they knew I was in poverty. They was like, hey, we'll help your family get a house. We'll make sure you have a stipend. We'll do X, Y, and Z. So we had all of these people that were trying to, you know, basically take advantage of our situation in order to get me at the school. But it was just one of those things that I was like, nah, nah, I'll pass on that. I'll make a way. And so everything worked out, man. But just growing up in poverty and I actually did my capstone on resilience for ur- for kids in urban uh, areas. It's one of those things that when I take a look at it now and seeing how I was forced to like 
really like learn and hone in on resilience as like early, it makes me realize like for me and my kids now the advantage that they have, you know, it's like my kids are privileged. I get that. My kids go to private mm-hmm. schools. I get that. So how am I able to reinforce resilience for them now? You know? Yeah. And so you're, the study was on the positive effects of resilience, obviously, and, and how. Yeah, it was, on, well, it was on the positive effects of resilience, but also it was on the lack of knowledge on external issues that causes these students to learn resilience at an early age, right? Mm. So lack of resources, right? Um, uh, parenting, uh, mm. some of the schooling issues. And so there were just a lot of things that, in previous studies weren't looked at in depth. And I thought it was interesting to, you know, look at things from a racial perspective. I thought it was interesting to look at things from a, a public slash private school perspective. And it was, uh, it was, it was eye opening because like I said, myself, my kids go to private school. I went to Vanderbilt, which is a private school. Mm -hmm. So coming from a all black high school and going to Vanderbilt was like the biggest culture shock ever, right? Yeah. Like I'm now in this like this Vandy bubble that we always talk about and that we enjoy that really coddles everybody that's in, you know, uh central Nashville. And for me going from Vanderbilt going from uh West End High School in Birmingham, Alabama to coming to Vanderbilt University it was a culture shock. But also at the same time the resilience that I learned over time helped me to overcome the issue. Yeah, that's that's really cool. It's it's been interesting. We had drastically different upbringings. It sounds like, but my my high school was public, and um, part of me resents the fact that I that I went to a private college, and I don't want my kids to to a certain extent. Obviously, like, look, we've been so fortunate to have gone to Vanderbilt, and like the opportunities and the network that you tap into are are fantastic. But there is an aspect of I, I guess the the term you use is resilience, yeah. where it's kind of disconnected from the real world where, you know, the, the high school I went uh, to was 70% minority groups. Mm. Um, and like the, I just feel like the, le- the practical lessons you can learn in an environment like that. Um, and I, I, ju- I just feel like it's invaluable. And so going yeah, to Vandy, it's, sure. it's, yeah. 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 No, it's definitely uh, going to a multicultural school will help you to learn more about, the reality of life Mm -hmm. because like being in a all you know a predominantly black or predominantly white setting that's all you know that's all you learn you only learn your culture and so me going to a predominantly black uh high school middle school elementary school all i learned my entire life was how the community worked i didn't know how the white community worked the asians you know the middle easterns like i had no clue and so for me coming on to vanderbilt campus was like yeah yo, what's going on? Like, this is insane. Like I'm in class with Asian kids and I've never even like had a conversation with an Asian person ever in my yeah. life. You know? Like Jackie Chan was like the first, like the closest I've ever been. <laughs> <laughs> like an age, like up close in person, like honestly, because like where I grew up, like we didn't take trips. Like I didn't, like we didn't, we weren't fortunate enough to fly around the world. Like yeah. the the only place I came to once was Houston during the summer, which was like in, 98 but I was almost like you know 11 years old so for me it was just it was difficult but I think by learning resilience at an early age uh, I was able to overcome a lot of it because it, it was different man I'll be honest like that first semester I was like if I wasn't playing football I probably would have left school but yeah. 
fortunately it uh it all worked out yeah that's i mean it's an interesting this show's all about kind of uh life's redirections where things change in your yeah. lives and you have to figure out how to how to deal with them so i'm curious do you have any words of wisdom for people who are in a similar situation maybe like grew up in one situation and, and now are in a different like how did you cope with that change yeah i think the biggest thing that I could give to people is to tell them to diversify your friends, diversify your life. A lot of people get caught up in the stigma of uh, assimilation and not being able to really uh, hone in on their cultural heritage. I would say, man, diversify, like, like be able to have friends in other ethnicity groups and cultures and learn their culture too. So now you're able to, you know, like communicate and talk with other people and not just say, Oh, you're wrong because of this, because I'm a Christian and I hang out with Catholics. I hang out with Muslims. And so I learned their tradition as well as they learn about mine. And I think it's a beautiful thing because everybody is, is so like kind of like, stringent when it comes to like certain issues in society and the only way that we could break those barriers that hey all right let me go and like talk to a person that's asian and talk about their culture and how they eat x y and z and some of the things that they do and hey come to my house you could come to my house and learn some things too and i don't think we do that enough i don't think a lot of people want to step out of their comfort zone and say hey all right i'm gonna you know, not, not forcefully do it, but kind of let it happen organically. And I think that would be one of the steps that I would tell anybody who comes from a predominantly white, predominantly black um, environment is to diversify it, man. Like step out. Yeah. Those are great words, man. And, and a phrase that I've been thinking about a lot that's been resonating with me is the phrase to know is to love. And I don't know why that's like just now hitting me, but I think it's so true that like like we're oftentimes scared of anything that's different, but as soon as you kind of take time to appreciate a different culture or a different type of personality or whatever it is, like there's so many beautiful aspects that maybe you didn't realize your first glance at it. Um, one of the things that I'm most thankful for is that I had a mentor my senior year of high school um, who told me like, hey, you're about to go to college. Uh, you've been hanging around athletes your whole life you should try to look at a school group that'll do something different. And so I actually enrolled in to do a school play my senior year spring. And I mean, going from the jock <laughs> crew to like the theater crew was so different, but I feel like it was the best thing for me because I learned, Oh my gosh, like, you know, not everybody's into pumping iron and like doing, right. you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah, for sure. yeah. yeah. No, it's, it's, it definitely will open your eye up and you may even like it. Like, that's the thing. Like, you don't know if you're going to like it until you actually try it. Yeah. So why not give it an opportunity instead of having like this, this blind ideology about certain things? It's like, I'm not going to go in like with this, like this pre, um, this pre thought as to why I don't like this culture. I'm not going to talk to this person because of X, Y, and Z. And because Trump is president, I'm not talking to no white people. Like, like, no, like he, Trump don't represent the other 99, you know, percent of like white people in America. And I think that's one of the issues that we have, man, because everybody is different. Everybody love, everybody is beautiful. But if we are stuck in our own like mentality, then we won't ever be able to like get out of it. I like your perspective on that, man. So, okay. Yeah. Was it, was it Bobby Johnson that recruited you to Vandy? Yeah. I got recruited by Bobby Johnson and Robbie Caldwell. 
was Robbie Caldwell, who's now the uh, offensive line coach at Clemson University. He was my main recruiter. And we still keep in contact to this day. Uh, coach Fisher was a receiver coach. He's my guy. I still talk to him. He's at Arizona State now doing great things. And so I stay in contact with those guys. I actually saw Coach Johnson at Jay Cutler retirement party, which was interesting because I've never seen him outside of the polo and, you know, like the pants and Nikes, right? Like, like I've never saw him. Yeah, in the hat. I've never seen him outside of uh, – you know, being like a coach on the field or being at, you know, media, SEC media day. So it was cool to see Coach Johnson. Uh, we talked about a few things. He's on the college football playoff uh, committee, mm-hmm. which is tremendous. So Robbie Caldwell was the guy that I interacted with a lot. And he goes, I'm going to tell you what, Earl, you come down here, you better get your ass right. <laughs> and so it was always funny, like, to talk to him on the phone because, as I mentioned, my high school was predominantly black. Like in terms of teachers, there was one white male teacher who taught chemistry. There was one white female who taught English. And there may have been one other white teacher, but literally that was it. Three max white teachers at our high school so those were the only white people that I ever interacted with like even playing like sports just the only people that you know I had conversations with and so to have like this white man call me (laughs) on the phone you know every week talking about having my ass ready was just hilarious to me right like every time you call me like I was like all right what he got today and I was just like crack up laughing every time we talked but I will say this he was the first white recruit that came through Birmingham city and came in my school. He didn't like meet me outside at in Hoover at Chick-fil-A. He came to my school and I was like, yo, this white guy got a lot of balls, right? Because (laughs) the whole entire environment is just like black. The neighborhood is just infested with gang violence and drugs. And to see him walk through, I was like, oh man, this is dude. All right, I kind of like him. You know, I kind of like him. Now, that's really good to hear. So, because my perception of Robbie Caldwell was not super positive. So, I got recruited by Bobby Johnson and that whole coaching staff. And then you remember, this is crazy for any college football fans out there. Bobby Johnson retired in July. Yeah. Before the season started, which is, like, unheard of. Usually coaches retire in January because it's further away from the season. He retired in July and – um Robbie Caldwell took over and they had me travel with the team and Robbie, like I was a long snapper. Um, I tore my hamstring and I was a long snapper. So he just saw like zero value in me. I thought, and (laughs) I would dude, I would be uh, like with the team in the hotel the night before the game. And I'd be going up to get meals. You know, they got these big buffet lines and you got a hundred guys going through there, just slapping stuff on their plate. Mm -hmm. And I would look over and he's just staring at me. He's like, Andrew, (laughs) <laughs> you ain't nothing but a grocery eater and I was like I like dude I'm like I'm like this freshman I'm just scared like I didn't feel like I belong there and he's just like bashing me oh my so I got those goes Caldwell right like like oh, you man. knew exactly what you was gonna get from him every single day <laughs> right every single day like yeah. that was, that's what he was gonna get give you and it I mean it puzzled me like when coach Johnson retired because he said nothing to nobody. Yeah. This is during camp. Yeah. He's just like, I'm out. 
Yeah. Man, like, like in the history of football, I've never, ever heard anything like that, right? And so when it happened, I was like, what? He's gone. Like, yeah. why'd he leave? Like, were they going to fire him? This, this, and that. So basically what I heard about the situation is that they wanted him to fire a few people within the coaching staff that had been there with him for a long time. And he was just like, I can't do that. Mm-hmm. You know, he was just like, no. That's not me. Yeah, I'm I'm wildly grateful for Bobby Johnson. In the first episode of this podcast, I talk about my recruiting story. Yeah, and uh, I don't know if you remember Rajon Bennett, but uh, the yeah, running back. The running was, back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's the reason that um, that I ended up at Vandy. Uh, they offered me his scholarship after he was, uh, you know, tragically murdered. Um, mm-hmm. And Bobby Johnson was just like so so good to me um, for for like the you know a little bit of the recruiting process and in the one week that I was there and and he hadn't been retired yet. But um, I want to talk about your Vandy career um, and then transition into the NFL because I mean, your experience has been drastically different from mine. Yes. I've bounced around the NFL. I had a good college career, but you had, I mean, just to go down some of the awards here, 2005, first team, all SEC, uh, you know, rivals, all American, um, multiple times scout.com all american you have tons of records at vanderbilt and um i want to know what what is the award that you've won or maybe it's not an award maybe it's an experience during your time at vandy that you're most proud of oh man the one that i'm most proud of for me honestly it was actually graduating like getting my undergrad degree because i left early i left after three years and so i um i uh I went back my rookie year, you know, I took some classes and after I took those classes, I think I was about 21 hours short and I came back my second year and I was just like, man, this is for the birds. I'm out. Like, (laughs) so I just left and I didn't go back until after I retired from the NFL. So in 2015, I went back and I completed my undergrad. But as I'm going in classes, I'm like, man, you know, I got 21 hours to take literally did all of them in a semester. I was just like, you know what? I'm going to just knock this out, man. Like, I know it's going to be tough. Uh, it's going to be rough. You know, I'm married. I got kids, but I got to I got to get this out of the way. So for me at Vanderbilt, that was, that was like the pinnacle of being a Vanderbilt Commodore, you know, like to be able to say, Hey, not only did I just go there, but now I am a true alumni of Vanderbilt because I graduated and it just propelled me to want to go and get a master's. And so I got into a master's program and completed my master's. So I'm a double graduate at Vanderbilt. Wow. Uh, in, ter- in terms of records, the one that I, I appreciate the most, <laughs> and it goes back to me, like, like, like it's a, like put like my foot in people's mouth. Like, you just be like, Hey, shut up. So as I mentioned earlier, I was recruited by Kentucky and I decommitted from Kentucky because they wanted me to play safety. I go, man, I want to play wide receiver. I think that's my calling. Uh, I enjoy having a ball in my hand and making plays. Uh, the recruiting guy looks at me and he goes, man, you're a defensive back. Like, I think you'll be a fine nickel slash safety or rover guy. You can come in and give us help right away. You know, you're a big guy, you gain weight. I was like, nah, I'm a playmaker. I like the ball in my hand. I've been yeah. playing offense since I was nine years old. And so we just kind of went back and forth, back and forth. And I was like, dude, I'm done. I'm not coming to your school. And he goes, what do you mean? I go, I'm not signing. So I decommitted from them, and then I opened up my recruiting. So Notre Dame came knocking, Vanderbilt came knocking, Ole Miss. So I had all these schools that wanted me to come now. 
and I ended up signing with obviously Vanderbilt just because they said, Hey, uh, you can come play whatever. Like we're going to make sure we get you the ball. And we have a pretty good quarterback here. That's probably going to play in the NFL the next next season. So I was like, all right, cool. So I go to Vandy and we're playing Kentucky at Vanderbilt. And the coach who recruited me at Kentucky was like, you know, Earl, he's just, he's disloyal. You know, he's one of those guys that just lie right to my face. His entire family are just a, a bunch of liars. And I just, I don't respect him as a person, let alone as a man. And so I was like, all right, cool. All right, this is what we're on. We're, we're going to talk. We're going to shame me, a, a guy that's 18 years old, and you uh, wanted me to do something that I didn't want to do. And so I went out. I scored five touchdowns. I, uh, wow. I, tied the, I tied the record for most touchdown catches in the game against Kentucky. So for me, that's that's been, like, my biggest one, just because, like, the guy came out and he just – I mean, he was just going hard, man. Like, he was just saying, like, crazy stuff. And so people are playing it for me. I'm reading it and hearing it. And I was like, you know what? I'll get you back. I'll get you back on the field. And so the first half, I think I only had one touchdown. And towards the end of the game, Jay threw up a deep ball and I caught it, but I was out of bounds. It would have been like a 50, 60-yard catch, but I caught it out of bounds. And the guy came down on my right shin and I thought it was broke. I, I was literally on the ground, like about to cry. Like I was like, yo, it's broke. I kept screaming. I was like, it's broke, it's broke, it's broke. And so they streamed my leg out, and it was like, no, it's not broke. So it was like right before halftime. <laughs> so they take me in the locker room, and I'm walking. They're like, you all right? You going to be good to go? I go, listen, nothing will stop me from playing like this second half. Like, I have a point that I need to prove to that guy on the other side. Like, this, this, like this, was a, this wasn't a game of Vanderbilt versus Kentucky. This was Earl versus, like, the, <laughs> like the defensive coordinator for Kentucky yeah. because, like, I mean, I despise that guy, and I just wanted to take it to him. So, went out, scored four that second half, man. Wow. That yeah. is awesome, man. That is yeah. a great story. Yeah. I love, though, I think, I think it shows so much of your priorities and perspective to you, for you saying that your proudest uh, accomplishment or experience at Vanderbilt was graduating. I think that's just, like, yeah, you're really, really uh, cool on your end, and for me like because Andrew nobody really knows what we go through right like there's one thing to say I'm a student athlete but there's one thing to say I'm a student athlete at Vanderbilt University right different game the professors don't care they they don't care who you are they don't care how fast you run how many touchdowns you score or how many games you win they want to know what do you know about the Great Depression? <laughs> they want to know about econ, the inflations. Like, there's, like, so many things that the professors just don't care. Like, there was one professor at econ. He never called me. His name is Professor Vrooman. I don't know if you took Vrooman. But no, no, no. I, I took him, and he's, like, 10. And I'm, like, 10? <laughs> Why is this guy calling me my number? Like, like he never called me Earl. He never called me Mr. Bennett. Bennett, nothing. He called me 10. He goes, 10, I'm going to tell you something. I don't care how many touchdowns you scored yesterday. You got to test some more. You got me? And so this guy, like, wrote me the entire time, man. Like, the entire time. But never called me Earl. Never called me Bennett. Always (laughs) called me 10. And those professors at Vanderbilt, like, they're there for a reason. Like, you like you pay for a quality education and that's what they care about. They care about making sure they educate you in a, a proper manner and you're getting your money's worth because that school is expensive, man. It is, 
it's, it's right up there with the Yale and the Harvard. And so for me, being able to complete my degree at Vanderbilt just shows, you know, like the fortitude for me and the discipline, like as a person to show that, hey, man, there's much more to you as than just like being an athlete, right? Because oftentimes you can get like entrenched and engulfed in, you know, the idea of being Earl Bennett, the athlete who everybody looks up to, who people say, hey, man, could you teach me how to run a slant route? And so I was able to pretty much put all of that to the side and focus on being a, you know, a student and not just a student athlete. Yeah, it's great. It's some. It's something that like while you're at school, you really want to have the easy way yeah. and have the teachers like, oh, oh yeah, oh no yeah, doubt. oh you're in the football team. Here's your here's your no A. Doubt. No doubt. But, but when you're walking up to the classroom and you see the coaches out there making sure that you're going to class, oh class checks, man. Different, man. Those class checks were were tough. Yeah. But here, here's a funny story. I very seldom miss class. I will be honest. Very very seldom. I missed class one time. It was. Um, <laughs> I think it was history of music. It was one of those night classes. It was like a seven o'clock class only met once a week. And it was a Wednesday and I didn't go, I didn't go to class. I missed it. And it was the same time where they put out uh, the all SEC team. And so <laughs> Mackenzie Adams told me the story. He was like, you know, the professor started off the class it was like, Hey guys, you know, thank y'all for coming. I just want to, uh, congratulate Earl Bennett on making first team all SEC. And, you know, he's been, you know, great for the no. university. You know, and Earl, I appreciate you, you know, being in this course. Earl? Hey, Earl. We're no. <laughs> oh, man. I wasn't even in class. So, yeah, that oh, was man. that was one of the funniest moments ever because, obviously, I had to go back to class the next week and, like, see him. And, like, he literally gave me a shout-out in class, and I wasn't there. Gosh, that's funny. Um, yeah, that was that was <laughs> that was very interesting when I saw him the next time. Like, <laughs> hey, <laughs> hi. Um, That's funny. Yeah. All right, this is gonna be this is gonna be challenging, but I'm curious right. <clears throat> if you could summarize your NFL career mm-hmm. in one word. Ooh, what in would you one say? Word NFL <laughs> career, one word. I would say solid. Solid. Yeah, I would say solid. Um, to be able to play in the NFL for six years is a um, an achievement that I greatly appreciate because as a kid, obviously I dreamed of playing, you know, like in a league and to actually do it for six years, I think it was good. But more importantly, my contribution to the team, I thought was solid. I think I did a pretty good job. Uh, I led the NFL in least drops for two straight years, which is an amazing accomplishment. Wow. We uh, played an NFC championship. I scored a touchdown in the NFC championship game, which is pretty big. Uh, I had a chance to play against Charles Woodson, who was my idol, like, growing up, because for some strange reason, I loved the black and silver of the Raiders. And so when he got drafted, it was, like, the only jersey I've ever owned, like, Literally, I owned Charles Woodson jersey as a kid, and that was it. I didn't have yeah. Jerry Rice. I didn't have uh, Troy Aikman, Emmett Smith, none of those guys. And for me, it was just a solid career. I feel like I went out there, I gave it all, uh, helped the team out in any way that I could. I returned punts. I blocked on punt return. I 
was on kick return blocking. I returned on kick return. And yeah. offensively, um, I just tried to be versatile. I wanted to be that guy that knew the entire playbook. So there were some plays where I lined up at running back. There were some plays where I lined up at quarterback. I was in the slot. I was outside. And so to be interchangeable, I feel like I have a had a very solid career. And it was fun, man, to play in Chicago. It For me, I'm going to be biased and say it don't get any better just because of the fan base, uh, the culture, and the history of the organization, a lot of great people I was fortunate to meet and learn from. And so, yeah, I think it was a solid career. That's great, man. Um, yeah, you, you did. Solid is probably an understatement. Uh, you had an awesome career. Six years is, is wild. Congratulations to you on that. Yeah, man, it was um, it was tough and challenging because for me, just the grind. I think after maybe my fourth year, that grind, man, it it started to be like cumbersome, and to wake up and to have to go through, you know, training camp. Well, you got OTAs all off season, then you get a little break, and then you go into training camp. From training camp right into the season, so. A lot of people are like, oh, man, you only work, you know, four months out of the year. And it's like, no, like, like I've been working <laughs> since yeah. March. Like, this thing don't stop. Like, it literally yeah. don't stop. And what a lot of people get mixed up is that OTAs is volunteer, right? Like, that word, like, drives me insane. It's like, it's volunteer. Yeah. Guess what? If you miss one day of that OTA, somebody's calling you trying to figure out why you're not there. Like, hey, uh, Earl, we're just trying to figure out where you're at, buddy. Hey, coach, yeah, um, I'm out here in Palm Beach. Uh, it's OTAs is, is voluntary, right? Um, yeah, it's voluntary, but uh, <laughs> everybody to be here, right? It's like, wait, that's not voluntary, then, if you want everybody to be there. Yeah. And so, for me, man, it was a, it was a grind. It was March to you know the end of the season then you pick right back up you get like a month off and you're right back at it but the grind never stopped because you have to keep your body in tip-top condition you gotta make sure your legs are ready you gotta make sure you're mentally sharp you gotta make sure you put the preparation in with them because with me it wasn't more so of being like a flashy type player it was more so of me knowing and understanding and recognizing defenses where I knew like hey Here's how I can get the ball or B. I know where the ball is going and I could just chill this play, right? So every time I lined up and got to the line of scrimmage, the first thing you always do is identify coverage. And once you identify coverage, you start to see like the backers move. I can see the mic. I can see what if he's in the A gap, you know, just all the, the bunch of the football um, jargon. But it was uh, for me, I wanted to make the game slow down from a, a mental standpoint. And then everything else was easy, man, honestly. Yeah. Uh, you just talked about one misconception about it being a four-month job and, you know, yeah. the, the rest of the year you get off. Uh, do you have any other misconceptions? You're actually the first NFL player that we've talked to on, on the show. Yeah, let's go. And so, like, you know, a big part of my story is uh, the mis- – I mean, everything from the contracts being guaranteed and as soon as you sign, you're rolling in the money to – Let's get into that. Yeah. This whole guarantee, right? Yeah. <laughs> my second contract, you know, I was like, oh, man, this is amazing, right? Yeah. Like, 
I got X amount guaranteed. This is super cool. Um, no matter what happens, you know, I'm guaranteed this amount. And so the second year into my contract, they approached me with taking a pay cut. I called my agent, called me and I go, I'm not taking a pay cut. They owe me like it's guaranteed. Like I'm guaranteed X amount. And he was like, uh, it's not really guaranteed. I go, what? Yeah. It says guarantee. (laughs) Yeah. But keep reading guarantee. If play a, if B, C, D, it's like, wait a second. So when I see guys who sign and they get $60 million guaranteed, I just start laughing because honestly, they probably just got 10 million. Yeah. And 10 million is a lot of money, but 60 is a lot, way more than 10. And so, (laughs) it's just one of those like huge misconceptions that I really dislike when people in the media put it out that this person is getting 60 million guarantee and is, it's not true. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's tough. I mean, I've, if, if I would have received all the money that I've signed in contracts, I would be feeling pretty good about myself, but uh, man, it's crazy, right? (laughs) If, if this was, if you were a basketball player, and you sign a guaranteed contract, guess what? It doesn't matter what happens to you. you like the you're, money. Gonna, you're gonna get every penny that's on that contract. Yeah. NFL, you only get, if you make the team, you only get, you, you're basically guaranteed that first year if you have a huge signing bonus, right? Mm-hmm. So if you are a first to fifth round draft pick, you're pretty much locked to make the team because that's a lot of money that they invest in you. I don't think I've ever seen a player get cut that was drafted in like the fourth round. Like I, like the first rounds one through four, there may have been a guy in the fifth round, maybe when I was there, but rounds one through four is a definite lot. Like they're not going to pay you X amount and then cut you. Yeah. You're guaranteed at least one year. And if you don't play with it one year, then they do cut you. Although there was a guy that I played with in Chicago that was a third-round draft pick that played with me at Vanderbilt. They came to me and said, hey, uh, we understand that you're good friends with this guy and you guys play college ball together. But they're actually thinking about cutting him if he don't play well tonight. It was the last preseason game. And I was just like, yo, what? They was like, yeah, we um, we're probably gonna cut him, buddy. <laughs> and I was wow. like, all right, cool. Let me go talk to him. And so I go talk to him, and he was just like, ah, yeah, it's whatever. I was like, <laughs> do anybody wow. care in this situation? Because obviously, it's like the team don't really care. But then, like, I talked to my friend, and he's like, whatever. You know, if they cut me, they cut me. But the guy ended up playing. I'm gonna say six years in the NFL. I have a feeling I know who you're talking about. Um... So he got it together. Yeah, he did. <laughs> um, you talked about like your identity as an athlete. Um, you're glad that Vandy forced you to like go the academic route too. So you kind of stretched outside of that identity. Um, did you have any problem with that as you transitioned out of the NFL, which is recent 2015 was your last yeah. season. Is that right? Uh, 14. 14. Okay. Yeah. So transition out of the NFL is, is tough, man. Yeah. Um, for me, I think that first year, I just wanted to kind of get myself together mentally and physically because of the, you know, the the physical uh, toll that it took on my body, my knees, my back, my neck. 
And uh, man, I I probably went to therapy like straight for two straight years, like really? at least four days a week uh, for sure. And it was tough because now I'm trying to figure out which way do I want to go in terms of my next career. And I was like, all right, well, I've always wanted to be an educator. Why don't I go back to school, finish up my degree, go get a master's and then work on a PhD and teach at the, you know, the collegiate level. So that's been my whole, you know, mindset this whole time. And what happened was I ended up, <laughs> I ended up doing a, uh, a feature at uh, Texans radio here in Houston. And the guy was like, man, like you have a gift, like you should explore a little more because you see the game totally different from most people that I've ever mm -hmm. sat down with. And I was like, you know what? I'll check it out. You know, I'll look into a little bit more. And from that interview, it opened up me doing interview. Uh, it opened up me doing radio and TV in Chicago. So now I'm doing pregame at WGN and I'm doing radio at WGN. But also I'm doing like some work with Fox too, with the Bears. So for me, I never envisioned myself being in the media because most of those guys, like, you know, they always had like their bad rap, right? There's always this one guy that you don't want to talk to, right? Or yeah. people who always try and like twist your words up, make you try to say something that you don't want to say. Like, I never forget this one time when, like this program I have uh, called Urban and Legends of Literacy, we were literally at the Boys and Girls Club donating e-readers. Uh, I think the next uh, two months later, we ended up doing a turkey drive. And so we constantly was, you know, in the community trying to do things. And this one guy go, so, so who purchased these uh, e-readers? I go, what a program did. He goes, so, so why did you partner with, um, with Aaron's? Cause I think we partnered with Aaron's to kind of help out. And I was like, because it was a partnership we felt like we could utilize and help students out to get more e-readers. He was like, well, how, well, how much money did you guys raise with the program? I was like, dude, you're supposed to be sitting here covering. Yeah. You know, trying to help people out, but you're up here trying to find out like financially, like what I'm doing it and why, because you're trying to find some type of story or a loophole when there's not, one to be found and so for me I never really envisioned myself being in the media because of people like that but the guys that I've been around so far like Mark Carmen, who's uh, with WGN and I'm pretty much on with him on TV and radio he's been phenomenal like he's a great guy I enjoy you know like the conversation we have about Bears football I enjoy the conversation we have about life last night we were talking about being pulled over at a light and he got a ticket for not having his lights on and I shared a story with him about Devin Hester one night Devin and I was riding in the car going back up north because we stayed about it's about 45 minutes to an hour from downtown Chicago and the police pull us over we were going 120 and so <laughs> when when the cop pulls over and asks how fast you were going Devin looked and he was like uh <laughs> he goes 70 <laughs> I was like dude oh, man. we were not going 70 like I was over there like I had the seat belt and I was just like god if you Please get me out of this car. Oh my god! I would never ride with this guy ever again. <laughs> <laughs> he's in his Maserati and he's just—I mean, he's just smashing it. And we're just flying cop pull over, and <laughs> and he's uh he's like license and registration. So Devin gave him license and registration, and the guy go, oh, 
well, tonight is your lucky night, dude. I'm going to let you off. But, no. before, but before I let you go, I just so happen to have this football in my patrol car. Would you sign it? Come on, man. Wow. <laughs> so he ends up signing the football. We leave, we go, we get home safe, and everything is good. Um, but just having guys like Mark to talk to, let like further let me know that, you know, the, the one guy that was at the charity event, he represented, you know, like a very small percentage of the good people that are in the media. And so I'm very fortunate to like be on with him and just kind of, you know, enjoy things. So I never saw it coming. Uh, it's been going well. And who knows what yeah. we're going to have in the future. You also have your own podcast show. Can you tell the people about that? Yeah, so I created a podcast that looks at the symmetry between hip-hop and sports. And so for me, I'm a hip-hop enthusiast. I love everything about it. I love the lyrics. I love the melodies. And so for me, I can't rap. I can't sing. My wife can sing. She's amazing. But I thought about, you know, what if I mash the two things that I'm passionate about and create a podcast about it? And so I love looking at sports in hip-hop because a lot of people don't really understand how sports and hip-hop unite people like like there's this bridge that it helps uh cover especially in the locker room so I had Brian Erlach on the show and we talked we had this thing called Freestyle Friday so every Friday before practice practice would be maybe 40 minutes we called it Fast Friday so you get out you hit all your drills 40 minutes and you're out Mm -hmm. But we would like to freestyle before it, but we only had three minutes to freestyle. So everybody comes over and kind of like give like a line, right? So you give your bar of the, of the day. And for some strange reason, everybody used to go to Brian Erlacher in Lance Briggs locker. They had a boom box. We surround and guys would just freestyle, but that also brought unity within a team. You would see Cutler over there. You will see Harvey Unger, who is uh, Tongan over there. You see Matt Tuena, who's um, who's from Hawaii, who's Samoan. He would be over there. So you have all the black guys. So it was like in the locker room, hip-hop was a way to unite all cultures. And I thought it was like super unique and super cool. And that's why I had him on. But also there are a lot of athletes that try and make that transition from the football field to hip-hop. And so guys like Arian Foster, who's doing well right now with his music, he's been very, uh, very fortunate because not a lot of guys have that success. And so I wanted to look at some of the guys who had that success and who didn't have that success. But then also, every time you hear a rap song, what do you hear? I'm shooting like Michael Jordan. I uh, got game like Kobe Bryant. I'm LeBron James. Uh, I mean, Julio. There's a song about Julio. Uh, I, got I think Drake said something about playing like Andrew East, but I forget what song that's in. Yeah, I think uh, <laughs> album. I think yeah, I think, I think Drake gonna drop that like next summer, and it's just gonna be flame, man. No, I, I look forward to hearing it, though. You know, yeah, yeah that'd be like, nice. Yo, that's my, that's my guy. Like Drake, <laughs> like Drake dropped my guy. Did y'all hear that? You know, yeah, yeah. and. Yeah, of course, you hear Drake rapping about, you know, I reach back like 1-3, like 1-3, which is Odell Beckham, the infamous catch he had against Dallas. And so I love looking at not only how hip-hop and sports are synonymous, but also how it bridges like some of the culture gaps that we have. Yeah. 
that's a great concept for the show. It's been fun listening to a couple of those episodes. You're great. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. You also debrief kind of what's happening in the in the NFL. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I always debrief what happens in the NFL. I kind of run down the scores, a couple of games, but I think I'm gonna move past it a little bit because a lot of people really want to engage more with the uh, the guests. Yeah. Like some, like you mentioned, like I had a guy chasing Cass who actually produced a couple of songs for Drake. He was on, and people loved him, man. It was like, yo, that dude's high energy and yeah. he's funny. So we talk about you know veganism and things of that nature and understanding the body, which was like super cool because for producers, they're up real late, right? Like they're up two, three a.m. because the artists, you know, they're on the road and then they come in and they get their work in. And he was talking about how he would eat a steak and it'd be hard for him to like wake up like the next morning because he's so draggy from, you know, it contain, you know, like uh, eating all this, uh, this red meat. Mm-hmm. And so he changed, you know, his diet up and he was like, man, I'll go to sleep at four o'clock and I'll wake up at six refreshed. Like, you know, not hungover, not drowsy and, you know, I'm ready to go. And so I think engaging more with the guests and giving people, um that symmetry between hip-hop sports and really life man is what people want a lot more and so that's what i'm looking looking forward to giving them yeah that's great for those listeners that are on with us right now i highly recommend you guys go check it out but uh we're gonna do a couple q uh fan q a's if you're good with that and then we'll do the closing questions um so in the name of the podcast is pro style pro style podcast oh no i'm sorry totally huge oversight on pro style podcast with earl bennett check it out um okay so we have a question here by lgbc uh golf she wants to know what's your favorite sport outside of football man that's tough um and the reason why it's tough because i recently got into uh watching boxing a lot there's um there's this cool like guy here in houston that i know that fights and I mean, just to see him punch and like hit a bag, it's like, it's amazing. Like how fast, like, like if you blink, you will miss it, you know? And I think that's a, like, it's a, like the beauty and the art and the really the turmoil that they put their body through, man, to get in shape for a fight. So right now it's like a toss up between basketball and boxing. Uh, I grew up a huge basketball fan. Uh, that was the one sport that I knew eventually I was going to beat my brother, at, although he you know, just walked out of the gym. But, yeah, I, I say if I had to choose right right now, I'd probably say basketball. That's great. Um, Skating Coach 33 wants to know, if you could change one thing about your career, what would, it, what would it be? One thing I would change about my career is I wouldn't have went to Cleveland. Um, for me, that was a pivotal point in not only my career but my life where I was trying to understand me like as a person. And so I wouldn't have went to Cleveland. I would have uh, just waited and weighed out some of my options. And a lot of people don't know, like I had multiple teams that were offering me contracts to come. They weren't good teams. I will admit that, but they were a solid team. So I had Minnesota Vikings. I had uh, the Tennessee Titans. I had um, the Jacksonville Jaguars. So those three teams at the time, they weren't really good teams. And so, I was like, yeah, you know, no, I'm cool. You know, I'll pass by that. But looking back at it, that's, I probably wouldn't go to Cleveland. Hmm. Worst time in my life. Worst. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, 
there's maybe some more to unpack there, but uh, <laughs> yeah. And it was, it wasn't the organization or the city or the people, but it was just the coaching staff. I didn't agree with. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. That makes such a huge difference. Um, yeah. And for me, I'm, I'm an easygoing guy. And if you got these rah-rah coaches who really haven't really accomplished anything and you're coming in and you're trying to set the tone, it's like, I don't, I don't do well with people screaming at me and yelling at me. So, yeah. Interesting. Um, okay, last one. Jay Laristo wants to know how many days a week do football players practice? All right. That's cool. Uh, <laughs> so during the season, obviously, you have Wednesday, which is like a day that you kind of get your body back together. Everybody, you know, you play on Sunday. So you play on Sunday. Monday, is, if you win, sometimes you're off. But if you lose, you come in and you just watch film and you get treatment. Tuesdays, you're off no matter what. Don't come into the uh, facility unless you're getting treatment. Wednesday is that first practice back, which is really long, but it's slow and guys kind of like drag their feet. So you have Wednesday, Thursday, which is all third down. So you do all long, like it's all passes. And I hated it because I was a wide receiver. And all you did the whole practice was running. Like you just running and running and running and I used to be so mad, especially when some of the older guys will like get injured or they say, Hey, um, I need a break and, you know, tap their head. And I was always like the young guy. Oh my gosh. So Thursday was a long day where you just did all passes. Friday was short. Um, and fast and sweet. You do a lot of short yardage. You do a lot of red zone. So you're not running very far. And then Saturday is a walkthrough. So during the season, you really only practice three times where you're exerting energy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Which is cool awesome. because, you know, the three days, Thursday really is like the day where you go hard and then Friday you taper back and just kind of get your legs under you. But that was at Chicago with me. I've heard other teams do it a lot different. Man. Um, one of my good friends that played for the Eagles when Chip Kelly was there, I heard they used to actually practice and lift weights on Saturday, the day before a game. And I'm not talking about lift weights like, you know, uh, just kind of warm up, get the muscles going. I'm talking about like lift heavy weights, like squat, deadlift. <laughs> and then they would go out and practice and sprint. Like it wasn't a walkthrough like we did on Saturday. It was a full sprint. You had a lot of guys that got injured during, like, Chip Kelly uh, tenure. But it was always just interesting to hear, you know, around the league how everybody's schedule was different. Yeah. Not going to lie, that Eagle schedule sounds awful. Yeah. Uh, who wants to do that uh, before game? Who, who wants to go and run the day before a game like that and then do squats and deadlift? Oh, my yeah. gosh. I, I wouldn't be able to feel my hamstring. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> no way. Yeah. Earl, so you got a lot of good things going on. You got the Pro Style Podcast. You're doing these uh, these interviews with WGN. Um, what are your goals after your extremely successful football career, transitioning out of it? What are your goals now? Uh, for me, uh, one of my goals is to uh, finish uh, graduate school and get a Ph.D., uh, to be able to be an educator. So that's one of my goals. Uh, another one of my goals is to be on the media, you know, like uh, in terms of media, be on radio and on TV full time. Uh, I think I'll be able to 
still complete my PhD uh, with that schedule just because of, you know, the timing and how everything works. Most of the TV's on the weekend because of the game. So you go Saturday, Sunday during the games. And radio, I could do it from my house. Mike set up. My neighbor's an IT guy. He can come wires, whatever I need, you know, so it can sound like I'm literally like, you know, there in person. So, yeah, that's that's what I look forward to in these next couple months is uh, just really ironing these things out. That's great. I'm interested to hear three life lessons that you'd like to share with the audience um, that you've learned in your journey. Three life lessons. Uh, One is that adversity builds character if you don't let it tear you down. Um, Everybody, adversity is going to strike everybody. It's a part of life. But if you're able to withstand it and come through it, you always come out stronger no matter what. So just you know, like you're going to have some bad days, but you're going to have more good days than bad days. And I think that's the important part of it. It's like, don't let adversity tear you down, but just let it continue to make you build and build your character. Uh, For two is resilience. Uh, Having a short-term memory, obviously being a football player, that's one thing that you kind of have to do. Like you have to be able to have short-term memory. I drop a ball. I can't sit there and think, oh, my gosh, I dropped that ball. And another ball come to me. Guess what's going to happen? I dropped that one, too. So now I have two drops. Oh, my goodness, what's going on? This is the worst day ever. And nobody wants to have two drops in one game. Let's just be honest. So having that resiliency to be elastic and bounce back when adversity do strike, I think, is another one. And the third one for me is just to always uh, stay positive, man. Uh, There's so much going on in the world right now, especially with the social climate being the way that it is. Just stay positive, man, Uh, because there is light on the other side. But if we are unable to accept positive vibes and we're always feeding into negativity, then it's going to be a rough time for us no matter what. So those are my three. Fantastic. Yeah. Earl, it was a pleasure sitting down with you, man. You're a lot of fun to talk to. Uh, I look forward to listening to more on your Pro Style Podcast episode. Um, I think I'm going to be on one yeah. episode too. Is that right? Hey, we, we got to get you on. Let's go. So let's uh, anybody listen, jump over and check it out. Yeah, we, we got to get you on, man. It's, it's, it's been too long. We've had other guys on, but it's time to get you on. We got to have you on next week's show. Okay. We got to get this thing done, man. It's, yeah. it's that time, man. Consider it done. Earl, thanks again. Yeah, man, no problem. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. If you found today's interview valuable, there are a lot of ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can also share it with your friends on social media, blogs, or on your own podcast. And please head over to my website at www.andrewdeast.com for more information and to request your favorite celebrity, entrepreneur, athlete, or anyone else who inspires you. Feel free to connect with me directly on Instagram and Twitter at Andrew D. East. And thank you again. We hope to see you next time on Redirected.